0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you're getting settled, let me just go ahead and give you a picture of what's ahead, especially for those of you that call Redemption Hill home. You've been here for a while, you know our normal course of is to take a book of the Bible and work through it verse by verse, kind of thought by thought, and try to understand what God has been saying to His church. And this fall after Labor Day, we are going to return back to that, and we are going to be going through the book of Philippians. So if you want to take the rest of the summer, the next month or so, to begin reading the book of Philippians, we may even bring back the Philippians memory challenge. Some of you remember that years ago we memorized Philippians as a group, but we didn't preach on it. Well, now we're going to preach on it and maybe we'll try to memorize it again. So after Labor Day, we're going to jump into that. But for the rest of the summer, we are going to continue in our mixtape series. And so far for the last two weeks, at least, my tracks on the tape um, have been dealing with the expansiveness of the gospel, especially for our shame, our misplaced shame and the journey that God has been taking me on Um, as he has helped me to see where I have underestimated the fullness of his gospel for not just my guilt, but my shame. Uh, And so this morning, this is my last track on the tape, so it seemed right to go ahead and and do that one more time. So we're going to deal again with misplaced shame and the gospel in particular. And before we do that, let me pray, and then we'll we'll jump into our time together. Uh, Father, we thank you for all that you have been doing amongst us and continue to do through us, Lord, we, we celebrate the safe trip, the safe travels you gave our brothers and sisters to the Middle East and back. Uh, We look forward to the seeds that were sown uh, in the hearts of those workers and their children to come to full fruition in your timing, Lord, that there was refreshment and encouragement and gospel depth that was explored. And and we just can't wait to hear the stories in the years to come of what you have done out of that time in their lives and in their homes. And we pray for their ministries in Central Asia where they will return uh, for those peoples who have not yet heard the name of your son and tasted of the goodness of your grace. We pray for just an extraordinary work of your spirit there in Central Asia, uh, that these workers who are giving themselves in such hard places will see the abundance of fruit uh, coming from you through the sharing of your good news. So we pray for them. We pray that you would do that same thing here this morning. And our time together as we hear from you and through your word that your spirit uh, would do the extraordinary work of continuing to transform our hearts and our souls into the likeness of your son. That's what we want. We want to see Jesus. We want to enjoy Jesus. And so we ask that you would do that for his glory and our joy. Amen. Um, Yes, I am wearing a Batman Um, (laughs) t-shirt. Yes, uh, I did have other clean shirts. So, yes, I did choose to wear this on purpose. Um, No, I'm not doing it because it's Family Sunday and I'm trying to pander to your children and to get their attention and their affection. Um, I'm wearing it because for 17 plus years, my wife has simply called me Batman Um, and she gave me this shirt, Uh, not because I am some kind of Batman aficionado. I am simply not. Um, It's not because I get up in the middle of the night when no one else is paying attention and go fight crime vigilante style with all of my cool toys that no one else knows about. Um, There is a story to why she has called me Batman and why she continues to call me Batman, but that's for another time and another place. But I will leave you with this. No one has ever seen me and Batman in the same room at the same time. (laughs) So make of it what you will. Um, But I am wearing the shirt because... Um, as I've been considering what we've been talking about in relation to the gospel and to misplaced shame. I I have been thinking this past week um, maybe just how appropriate the nickname has actually been, even if I didn't fully understand why. Um, And I hope you see it this way. How many of you have seen the Lego Batman movie? Have you seen it? Arguably the best Batman movie made. Um, I will argue that it might be the best Lego movie made. You might disagree with me. But the writers of Lego Batman have done something in that movie in relation to the character of Batman that I don't think any other writers have been able to do. If you go back and you you watch the movie and begin to watch the story unfold, yes, you get the outwardly strong, heroic, crime fighter Batman, but the writers do something through the story to help you see behind that. You see that that outward crime-fighting hero is quite literally just a mask. It's just a cover for something else. Literally, he wears a mask to cover this thing, a mask he doesn't like to take off. The writers let you in on a little bit more about this Batman, and you see him when he's at home, alone and isolated and unknown. And even when he's at home, if you've seen the movie, have you ever noticed he still wears the mask? It's like even when he's there with himself, there's still something about who he really is that he doesn't want to have to deal with. So he keeps the mask on. There's a time in the story, if you may remember, when they're on their way to a big benefit dinner and he's dressed like Bruce Wayne. But yet he's sitting in the back of the limo and he's still got the mask on. And Alfred tries to tell him to take it off and he doesn't want to do it. And when he finally relents to taking the mask off, he's like, oh, fine. Fine. He likes to keep that thing on, and as you watch the story, you realize that everyone who comes into contact with him in different ways is impressed by him. They're impressed by Batman, they're impressed by Bruce Wayne, but they don't know either of them. And as the story keeps going, you begin to see that in all the different ways, as Bruce Wayne or as Batman, he's unwilling or even unable to receive the various forms of connection and belonging and relationship that the people in his life are offering to him. And as the story plays out, you begin to see some of the painful results of this. There's that time when he's at his home and you see him not taking the mask off, not able to be with who he really is. And in that isolation and in that loneliness that they paint so clear in the way they build his house, he's just trying to numb that whole thing with his music and with his guitars and with his toys And there's that time when he goes to steal something from Superman's Fortress of Solitude. You remember that? And he gets there, and what does he realize? The whole DC universe is throwing a party, and no one invited him. And again, you get a taste of the isolation and the aloneness that he he feels. And rather than dealing with the reality of that, he just concludes that he couldn't have been invited to a place he didn't want to go to in the first place. And (laughs) off he goes again. And this week, as my kids were watching Lego Batman, as I saw the shirt hanging up in the house, I couldn't help but in my mind hear the words that I've been reading over and over again from Ed Welch's book, Shame Interrupted, where he said, "...at the very heart of shame is the absence of relationships, the absence of being known. Shame itself is literal personal isolation." So these last couple of weeks, we have been looking specifically at the origin of shame in the Bible, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, and we've, we've seen the impact of shame on our relationship with God. We've seen the impact of shame even on our relationships with ourselves. We talked about that last week, and we've seen over and over again that when shame sets in, we find ourselves trying to hide, find ourselves trying to cover. We try to hide behind perfect and pretend exteriors. Quite literally, we find our own mask to put on. Something else to cover us up that we might be seen in a different way. And as we've been going through this origin story and this impact story of shame, we've been reminded, Moses has reminded us in, in Genesis that. When God created man, he knew that it wasn't good for him to be alone, that he created us for connection with him and with others. And so God even made for Adam, Moses tells us, the perfect, most suitable partner for him. And even in all of that, Moses reminds us that God made Adam and Eve the crown of his creation, that which he intended to be crowned with glory and honor like we saw last week. He made us in his image and likeness. And at least one thing that that means is that the connection, the love, the openness, the communion, the relationship that has existed for all time in the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the Trinity is meant to be incapable of being reflected, mirrored back in some way in the relationships that we're meant by God to have with each other. But what we've seen is that shame interferes with that shame interrupts that. Shame isolates us and undermines this connection that God intended for us. Shame tells us a narrative that we've been talking about for the last few weeks that we've done something or we failed to do something or something's been done to us. There's something about who we are or where we've come from that has made us unlovable and unworthy of connection. And so when we begin to believe the narrative of shame, when the misplaced shame begins to take hold of our hearts, we begin to create distance between ourselves and others. That's what the masks do. They impose an artificial distance between us. Why? Because we're terrified if you really knew what was behind it, that we'd be rejected. See, just like Batman or Adam and Eve, and every other man or woman or child who's ever taken a breath on this earth, the relationships that we are intended to have with each other, the connections that God intended us for, that were to reflect back and mirror back his connection in himself, those relationships have suffered because of our shame. There is a social impact to our shame. There's a Christian counselor named Heather Nelson, and She talks often about these trademarks of social shame, trademarks of the impact of our misplaced shame on the relationships that we're meant to have with each other. One of those trademarks she talks about is insecurity. She says, this is a hallmark of shame in our relationship with each other. We never sense like we really belong together or that we're home in any particular place or group. And when that insecurity begins to set in and when that misplaced shame narrative begins to play over in our mind, you and I can begin the project of trying to please everyone around us. People pleasing is a complex thing, but it's a real thing. And she writes about how people pleasing feeds off this insecurity because the more we try to work to gain our acceptance in other people by being who we think they want us to be, the more insecure we become because the goal line always keeps moving. The more insecure we become and the more we try to please people and the more we try to be what we think they want, the less we'll be able to be who we really are. And she says the hallmark of a fear of intimacy begins to set in. So you can't get close enough to anyone so that they can see who you really are. They don't really know you. You find ways to keep them at arm's length. Like Batman, you find ways for people to always be impressed by you without ever really to have to know you. See, if they got close enough, they might realize that you no longer know who you really are. And as the insecurity sets in, and the project of trying to please everybody begins, and the fear of being intimate with them, and them knowing the secret that you don't know yourself, and them knowing you sets in, what happens? All of a sudden, you got to keep this thing going, because what if they reject you? But you see, if you can keep them at arm's distance, if they don't ever really know you, they can't reject you. If they don't get the chance to choose you, they don't get the chance to not choose you. And as I was thinking about what she was saying over the last few weeks and, and thinking about what we've been talking about, I was reading it earlier this week, and in my mind, it was like a light bulb. It was like, boom, she's analyzing Batman. That's the story. But then I realized that, that maybe for much of my life, I really was Batman. Maybe the nickname was far more appropriate than I ever realized. And so, this morning, with the time that we've got left, I I just want us to consider something. I want us to consider the things that are necessary for you and I to live and to breathe in a culture in our church and in our homes where misplaced shame simply isn't welcome. What does it take for us to live? and to move, and to breathe, and to relate to one another in such a place and in such a culture where misplaced shame is the enemy. It's not welcome. Where the mask that you and I wear in all the different places that we go, the mask that we wear at work, the mask that we wear at church, the mask that we wear with these friends, the mask that we wear with these friends, the mask that we wear to be who we think people want us to be so they don't get the chance to actually reject us if they actually knew us and the distance gets growing more and more and more between us. What does a place have to be to look like where we don't have to wear those things anymore? I want us to consider what that would take. And no one has articulated for me outside of the Bible better what it will take to live, to move, and to cultivate this kind of culture better than Ray Ortland. If you have not received, if you're a guest with us and you haven't received his book that's out there on the table called The Gospel, I would encourage you on your way out to get it. In that book, he talks specifically about the three things that are necessary for you and I, as I will say it, to be able to live together in a place where misplaced shame isn't welcome. And I want you to hear what he says. He says, in that book, the family of God is where people behave in a new way. If this kind of distance and this kind of isolation is normal, if these kind of masks are normal, if we do this kind of people-pleasing, fearing this kind of connection and intimacy and live in this kind of insecurity everywhere else, he says the people of God are meant to live in a new way, behave in a new way. And he says, I think of it with a simple equation. Gospel plus safety plus time. The family of God is where people should find lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. In other words, he says, the people in our churches, and I would say the people in our homes, because what we're talking about is no different at home than it is here. In other words, the people in our churches and the people in our homes, they need multiple exposures to the good news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. They need the safety of non-accusing empathy, so that they can admit their problems honestly and they need enough time to rethink their life at a deep level because people are complex and change is not easy. Gospel, safety, time. I just want to consider those three things with the time that we've got left. See, for our churches and for our homes, to have a culture To be a place where misplaced shame simply isn't welcome, where misplaced shame is is choked out, there has to be repeated exposures to the fullness of the gospel. They have to be places where Jesus is repeatedly seen, where Jesus is repeatedly looked to, where we see Jesus repeatedly so that we might deeply enjoy him. They have to be a place where we see and enjoy Jesus. And so for the last two weeks, talking about shame and talking about misplaced shame, we've tried to go to the cross to see what God has done, not just for our guilt, but through his son for our shame. And so this morning, as we talk about the church and the homes being a place where there's lots of Jesus and lots of gospel, so that our shame isn't welcome, I want to take you down a different track with Jesus. See, if you're familiar with shame at all, If you're like me in any way and you would sense that your story is one that is saturated with shame, I want you to understand, if you've never seen it before, that Jesus engages you in your story from the very beginning of his own. In fact, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. While you're turning there, I don't know if you've ever noticed or ever really considered, but when all the gospel writers talk about the birth of Christ, they they talk about the poverty that Jesus was born into. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but in Jesus' day and in Jesus' time to be born into the kind of poverty that Jesus was born into would mean that in the eyes of those around you, you were worth less than nothing. Nothing. You were one who in that time were truly on the outside. So the king, the promised Messiah, the one who would establish the kingdom of God for all of eternity, who would defeat Satan's sin and death in our place, when he comes, he identifies with those from the jump who the world looks at and says, you're worth less than nothing. And if you think about it, if you were going to introduce this kind of king, if you were going to introduce this kind of man, if you were going to tell his story and where he came from, you would look at the parts that might be a little embarrassing or might bring a little bit of shame, and you would try to erase those things, but not him. You go read the gospel writers' genealogies of Jesus, where he came from and who he came from. Nothing is hidden. There you read it. You'll find Perez. You'll find Tamar. You'll find Rahab. You'll find Ruth. You'll find those who in their time and in their day in the world in which they lived were utterly outcast, shameful in the eyes of the world around them. But that's who he came from. Before he's even born, the writers are helping you see he knows your story. But then Luke chapter 4, here's where I want to... I want to start because this has captivated me for the last little bit as I've thought about this whole issue of shame and as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, how in some sense you can see the entire redemptive story of the Bible through this lens because this is how the world that Jesus lived in thought about things. From the jump, Jesus, Luke chapter 4, he stands up in the synagogue. He's going to begin his public ministry. The scroll of Isaiah is laid out in front of him. And Jesus, for the first time as he begins to preach, he gives, in some sense, you can say, his intent, his statement of intent, his, his mission statement, if you like that language. And, and listen to what he says. It's absolutely captivating in this. Luke 4, verse 18. Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to The poor. The poor. Who we already know, I just told you, in Jesus' time and the world in which he lived were less than nothing. Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, is declaring that he is going to voluntarily associate himself with those whom the world deems as worthless, shameful. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Who are captives? They're those that are enslaved by someone else. Their dignity, their humanity, their worth, their value has been utterly ripped and robbed from them. If there was someone who was less than nothing in the poor, it was the enslaved. But he sent me to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the enslaved, recovery of sight to the blind. If you're familiar with the gospel stories and you've read through it, you may have heard this and thought about this as well. In Jesus' day and in his time, there were many people who believed that physical deformity was the direct direct result of your sin, something you had done, or something that somebody in your life that you're associated with had done. Your physical deformity, be it blindness or any other deformity that may exist, was an outward sign of your worthlessness and your shame. But here's who I've come for. And here's what I've come to do. I've come to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this has been absolutely captivating to me to think about this in relation to shame, because this is a description of the people who are going to populate Jesus' kingdom. This is your story from the beginning of the outset of his mission. And when he declares his intent and he gives his statement in Luke 4, he just sets off walking. That's what he does. Just sets off, begins to walk, begins to minister. And instead of jumping all the way to the end of the story, here's what I want you to do. I want you just to follow him from that point forward. Just begin to follow where he goes. I point this out because if you've been reading in the CBR journal or doing CBR with the rest of the church, you know this last week we just started the Gospel of John. So you could do this even through the CBR reading. If you could could do picture pages on the Bible and on Jesus from the time he gives this declaration of intent and draw a line, it would look like Jesus was always taking the straightest and most direct route to the most shameful and marginalized people. The shamed and those suffering shame. You begin to get the idea that these are actually Jesus' people. People. The outcast and the unclean. In fact, in his book, Shame Interrupted, Ed Welch makes this amazing observation that Jesus, if you just follow him in his life, seems to be determined to associate and be intimate with the shameful. And as you read Luke in Luke 4, 18 and 19, if you just keep reading, just stay with Luke. Let me go to Luke. I'll get there, Sorry. Just stay with Luke in Luke chapter 4. You begin to see something about Jesus. Look at verse 40. I got to get there, sorry. I was jumping somewhere else and decided to go back to this. Look at verse 40. When the sun was setting, all of those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Now what do we know about those who had various diseases in Jesus' day? they were what? Unclean. They were those who wore their shame on their body. They were those you weren't to associate with because associating with them in an intimate way made you unclean. People were bringing the unclean to Jesus, and what did he do? He laid his hands on every single one of them, and he healed them. If you just keep reading, Luke, it's it's like he wants you to see this over and over again. In chapter 5, verse 12, it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And he fell on his face and he begged Jesus to make him clean. And what did Jesus do? He stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will. Chapter 7, just keep reading. Luke is all about this stuff. Chapter 7, verse 14. There is a woman who has a son who has died and Jesus came up and he touched the place where he was laying what do we know about dead things dead people dead animals in Jesus' day if you were to touch them if you were to come into contact with them you would be unclean Luke keeps going go to chapter 8 you know the story there's a woman who had an issue of blood You've heard this story before. You've probably read this story before. For over a decade, her body was bleeding and there was nothing anybody could do about it. But do you know what that means for her? Not just was there the discomfort of this reality physically for her. What that meant for her is that in the eyes of everyone else around her, she was unclean. Her body bore the reality of her shame out there for everybody to see so if before she began to have this issue and bleed she was married she didn't have a husband now if there were kids they're not there now why they can't be associated with her you can't be near her you can't touch her why because you would be unclean well guess what she was never clean which meant there was no way for you to ever be with her and ever be clean This woman was a picture of the shameful and the marginalized. And like the rest of them you read in the gospel stories, they've either heard something about Jesus or they've seen him as he's been coming to town and they recognize that he has this tremendous capacity and power about him. And yet in this power and capacity, he wants to associate with those the rest of the world won't associate with, those who are without connection. And so she decides she's got to get to him. And I've always seen this story in my mind. like like being at a concert or a sporting event where there's a huge crowd and you've got to kind of push your way through to get to your seat and get where you want to go. That's probably not how it happened because she was unclean and everyone knew it. So when she begins to get close, it parts like the sea because if you were to touch her, be near her, associate with her, you would be unclean. And to herself, she keeps saying, if I could only touch it, and if you just follow his story, commentators will continue to point out the uniqueness of what they call the touching Savior. Everywhere he goes, he seems to take upon himself people's uncleanness and yet not be contaminated. Those with which the world looked at as most shameful, most outside, most cut off, most disconnected. Those if you came into contact with or association with, you would find yourself shamed and defiled. Jesus seems to go straight to and touch and take upon himself their uncleanness and yet he doesn't get contaminated. One commentator said there's an amazing exchange that seems to happen everywhere Jesus goes. He goes after the unclean and he takes on their shame and he makes their shame his and yet in his touch he makes them clean. He distributes their, his holiness as they identify themselves with him. If you've been reading in, in CBR and you've been reading the Gospel of John, you may remember in John chapter four that John records a story when if you were just following that line that Jesus was taking, you were following his footsteps. Jesus took a route straight through the region of Samaria. Samaria. Most Jews in that day would not go into Samaria. You would go around Samaria. But Jesus intentionally went straight through Samaria. And when he stopped at the well in the middle of the city, in the heat of the day, he did it intentionally because there, there was a woman who was there to get water. And she was there in the middle of the day to get water when no one else would come out to get water because that was the only time she could go do it because of her shame. And if you've read the story or you're familiar with it, you may have stood amazed like I was as I looked back at it that it was to this woman who in her shame had to suffer the distance of relationship and connection from everyone else. It was to her that Jesus revealed that he was the Messiah. One writer said it's, it's the simple fact of life that you will reveal your fullest self to those that you are closest to. It's like the writers want you to see over and over and over again the unclean, the outside, the marginalized, the shameful. These are his people. These are his people. Now, when he sits to talk with her, she tries to deflect everything he says. She's got more masks on than Batman. She tries to deflect everything, but he keeps pursuing. He's after the heart. He's after her. And he reveals to her who he is and she reveals who she is. The masks come off to him and she identifies with him. And John says she gets up, and that person who had to live in her shame, disconnected from everyone else around her, even coming to get water at a time when no one else would because she couldn't come with anyone else, she now gets up and goes completely unashamed and fully free, having been touched by Jesus, having met Jesus, having seen Jesus, and goes and tells everyone else about him. And John says in verse 39 that many people in Samaria came to believe in Jesus because of her words. Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, follow Jesus. You begin to see that women like this, the lepers, the sick, the blind, these are the people, these are the ones that will populate Jesus' kingdom. The shamed, the outcast, these are Jesus' people. And we know the story. He keeps walking. He walks all the way to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. We know that it's on the cross. We've been talking about it the last couple of weeks, that the greatest transfer, the greatest exchange will take place. He will take on his body the fullness of our guilt, the fullness of our shame. And for those who identify by faith with him, he gives us, he touches us, and he gives us his holiness, his righteousness. But here's the thing. If you read the story with the right perspective you begin to realize that what happens on the cross when he takes our guilt and shame upon himself, he's been doing all along. He's been absorbing people's shame all along and distributing his cleanliness, his holiness to those who identify themselves with him. And on the cross, the fullness of what he has been doing in his entire ministry, the shame of what you've done, the shame of what you've been associated with, the shame of what's been done to you, he is fully and finally taking upon himself and putting that shame to death. Friends, this is the good news. And it gets even better. God raised this Jesus up and seated him at his right hand so that all who have been touched by him, who by faith have identified themselves with him, whose shame He has taken upon Himself, you and I are seated with Him by God's Spirit at His right hand. We're no longer outsiders. We're welcomed in. We're no longer the unclean. We've been washed We're no longer the naked, the exposed. We've been clothed in his righteousness. The dishonor that shame has brought has been replaced by the only distinguished honor that God can give us, that he created us for. Friends, if we're going to live and move and breathe in the church or in our homes, in a culture where misplaced shame isn't welcome, we need lots of Jesus. Repeated exposures to Jesus, lots of Jesus, that we might see Him and that we might enjoy Him. It's why, even when we gather together, this story, this good news, this gospel, it shapes the way that we order our time together. We're called together from the very beginning on a Sunday morning by this great king. We respond by singing songs that give voice to our sense of pain, our voice to our sense of guilt, voice to our understanding of shame, and voice and praise and honor to the one who has ended it, put it all to death in our place. Together we pray a prayer of confession, again, giving voice and giving words to our understanding of our guilt and our understanding of our shame. And even as we do that together, we're being reminded as one people that we're not alone. That we hear again from his words, his words of grace and the assurances of his pardon. We take time to read, to hear from God's word, minding the scriptures together that we might see him again and enjoy him more when we come in here and the narrative of shame is replaying over and over in our mind and our focus is solely directed on ourselves our own sense of inadequacy is really all we see everyone else seems to fit here better than me everyone else seems to know what's going on here better than me everyone else if they really knew what I was like they wouldn't sit by me they wouldn't be me maybe this isn't the right place for me It's it's times like this, it's corporate worship together that God has intended to be another reminder of who he is for us in his son, that we might see him and enjoy him, and our perspective is redirected off of us and those around us and back on to him. The shame that keeps us focused on ourselves and our sense of inadequacy, especially in light of those around us, because that's what shame does. Corporate worship shifts the eyes of our heart. It redirects it. Lots of Jesus is what's needed. And if that wasn't enough, he, he has given us tangible, physical reminders of his grace. More exposures to the gospel and to his son. As we repent of our sin, identify with Jesus, you and I are invited into these tangible reminders that assure us individually, assure us corporately that all that God said and all that he has done really is True. Baptism and communion, they're the truth of the gospel communicated to us through tangible means. By by faith, those tangible reminders are meant by God to nurture the fullness of who he is and what he's done in our heart. You see, in baptism we acknowledge that only in Jesus can we find cleansing and forgiveness from our sin and from our shame. In baptism, we are are publicly professing and we're publicly acknowledging and we're publicly identifying ourselves with Jesus in his death. His death for our shame. Our shame and our guilt put on his body. We are identifying with him publicly and physically. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Physical, tangible, corporate reminder of Jesus. One more time. That we might see him and enjoy him, and when the shame begins to tell you that you're not worthy of love, not worthy of connection, you need to be someone else for him. You can even look back on that time and be reminded and nurtured in your heart of who you really are and what he's done. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism talks about this. It, It says about baptism that Christ has instituted this outward washing with water and has promised that By it I am just as certainly washed with his blood and his spirit from the corruption of my soul as I'm washed outwardly with water that commonly washes away filth from my body. Is shame nothing but the corruption of the soul? Misplaced shame is the greatest corroder of the soul. It's been washed away. Tangible reminders of the gospel every week as we're gathered together and those of us who have identified ourselves with christ by faith we come forward to receive communion and when we do it's a tangible reminder it's a physical proclamation that we are leaning into believing and holding fast proclaiming the lord's death and all of its provisions and sufficiencies until the day he returns that's what paul said So when we come forward by faith, take the bread, remember his body, dip it in the cup, remembering his blood, we are proclaiming that we have identified with him, we have believed in what he has done, and we believe the fullness of all that he has accomplished, including the death of our shame, until the day that he returns. And not only that, when you and I come forward to receive communion, we're reminded physically, even as we sit out there and then come forward up here, that there was a time in which we were outside of his grace. In our shame, we were outsiders. We were unclean. But in his grace and by his son, he has brought us near. And because of him, we have been received, accepted, cleansed, purified, invited. Friends, it's the ordinary repeated exposure to the gospel are so powerful against our shame Jesus has clothed us with honor where there had been shame and not only that he has made us a part of a community that is meant to be a visible physical reflection of this exchange of this exchange of shame for honor See the church in our homes, they're they're meant to be a place where shame is not welcome. So there's gotta be a lot of gospel and a lot of Jesus, but there's gotta be a lot of safety. You see, the deal breaker for having this kind of culture, for living in this kind of culture as a church or as a family, the deal breaker isn't our sin. That's not the deal breaker. The thing that makes this not possible are words and behaviors that make our churches and make our homes unsafe for other sinners. It's the words we speak and the actions that we exude that tell other sinners like us that this place isn't safe for them. And guess what? If they stick around, do you know what they'll do? They'll just wear whatever mask they think they need to wear to make you okay with them. In that great book on the gospel, Ray Ortlund said, the greatest threat to a typical church is not the adulterer, but the gossip, who may be outwardly blameless, but inwardly ravenous. You see, if you've learned nothing from the last two weeks, it's simply this. There are people who walk in here every single week suffocating under the grip of misplaced shame, feeling like everyone else fits in here but them. If you knew what they did last night, if you knew what they did last year, if you knew what they wanted to do, if you knew what they were attracted to, if you knew what their kids were really like, if you really knew them, this would not be the place for them. And far too often, our churches and even our homes, through the words we say and the actions that we take, communicate that this isn't a safe place for you. When people are open, when people are honest, when people are vulnerable, when they've recognized it and sense that this may be a place where they can let go of that mask and that shame can be taken away and what they're given in return is a bad reaction, harsh words, a cold shoulder, or a message of, of real biblical scriptural truth but no grace to accompany it. It says over and over and over again, for sinners like you, this isn't a safe place. Friends, what we are begging God for is a place where any sinner can bring any sin and find some level of relief in Jesus simply by courageously and gently being honest about who they are and sharing with other sinners the mindset and the spirit that Luke records in Luke 18 God be merciful to me, a sinner. It's only in places where there's lots of Jesus, lots of gospel, lots of enjoying in Him. It's only in places where you commune with Christ, who who laid aside the fullness of community and connection and association with the Godhead in heaven to come to serve us and to die for us. It's only in places with lots of Jesus and enjoying Him that can grow into the kind of place that welcomes and nurtures those who suffer from deep misplaced shame. And if we're going to progressively live free from shame, welcome those who are suffering from misplaced shame. We need the safety to be honest and be able to take off the mask. And to do that, it's going to take you and I being willing to actually admit that we wear them. To be open and honest and courageous and vulnerable with each other as we share our honest realities and our honest stories that we might hear the grace of the gospel spoken back into our lives. I mean, just imagine. Just, I want you to listen to something. I want you to just imagine if this church or our homes were marked by the kind of, of culture, the kind of safety that Paul talks about to the church in Rome. I want you to hear this. Romans 12. I'm going to read it through the, the New Living, so don't put it on the screen because it's not going to be the same. Just imagine this kind of culture in our church or in our homes. Paul says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. You know what's wrong? Misplaced shame is wrong. Misplaced shame should not be welcome. Don't just pretend to love others. Love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Most of your translations will say, outdo one another in showing honor. What if that was the the thing, the the banner, the sign that went over Redemption Hill and went over your house? We outdo, we take delight in showing one another honor. That's a safe place. For that to happen, there has to be lots of Jesus because honor isn't just flattery with words. Honor in the sense that Paul is talking about, that the Bible is talking about, is recognizing and exposing to one another the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory at work in you. It's saying, here's how I see Christ at work in you. It's here how I, I see the glory of Christ pouring out of you through this. That is what honoring is. What if this church, what if our homes were known to be populated with people Who delighted to outdo one another in showing honor? That's a safe place. But to be that kind of place, there has to be lots of Jesus. Again, in that gospel book, read it. Ray Ortland says our churches, and I would say our homes, and I know it's true of me, tend to live on a starvation diet of affirmation. What if we were willing to risk a more generous tone of delighting in one another? You need to realize it's, it's gospel obedience to honor another Christian by helping them to understand, here's how I see the glory of Christ appearing in you. A lot of gospel, a lot of Jesus, a lot of safety, where sinners like you and I can confess and the shamed can take off their masks Where no one who is seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Lots of Jesus, lots of safety, and a lot of time, of which I am out of. But all that means is simply this where there's lots of Jesus and there's lots of safety, there's no one putting an artificial deadline on your maturation. Yes, there's an urgency. There's an urgency to grow up in the things of the Lord. That's good and that's right, but there's no pressure to be in a hurry because no one changes quickly and change is complex. But we understand because there's lots of Jesus that God is patient and God's timing and sanctifying you from your sin, it's not meaningless. The time that it's taking when it feels like it's so slow The time that it's taking when you're wondering if there's been any progress at all, it's not meaningless. God has a sure and steady plan for your deliverance. And here's his plan. He intends to present you and the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that you might be holy and without blemish. That takes a lot of Jesus a lot of safety, and a lot of time. And so Orland says in the book, in that chapter, in this place, in that kind of place, in a home or a church where that kind of culture is being cultivated, no one is singled out for embarrassment. Everyone is free to open up or to take off the mask. And we'll all grow together as we look to Jesus. What do we need to live, to move, to breathe in a culture where misplaced shame isn't welcome? Ordinary faithfulness, a long-term view. A lot of Jesus, a lot of safety, and a lot of time. That's why David reminds us in Psalm 34, 5, that those who look to him, those who look to Jesus, seeing Jesus, enjoying Jesus, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be Ashamed. Friends, I am going to pray for us in a moment, and then we are going to respond to God's word. And you will be invited for those of you who have identified with Jesus, those of you whose shame he has taken upon himself. I am going to invite you this morning to look to him again, to identify with him, to come forward in a few minutes to receive the body and the blood of Christ. We're going to invite you to come as one who has received the sign of cleansing and and washing in the waters of baptism, who, who is living in the joy and the fellowship of God's people. We're going to invite you to come and share God's fellowship as you take the bread and dip it in the cup. And we're going to invite you to come with a heart that's ready to lay the masks down, to love as you have been loved. And if you're here this morning and you would say that you've not yet identified with Jesus. You've not yet believed upon Jesus. You're you're still considering all of his claims about who he is and, and what he has done this morning. I want you to hear me. I'm not inviting you in a few minutes to come forward to the table. I'm inviting you to Jesus. Come to him. He's the one who can bring and to give you the forgiveness and the cleansing your heart so desperately wants. He's the one who will give you his spirit and welcome you into his fellowship. Friends, if you do that, when you do that, let somebody know. Let one of us know. We want to help you understand who he is and what he's doing. But for those of you who have identified with him, in a few moments you're going to be invited forward. You're going to be invited to come and receive communion. Not because you're worthy in yourself. Not because you're particularly righteous in yourself. Not because you're particularly faithful in yourself. But because a loving Savior has touched you. He has taken your guilt and your shame upon himself and he has invited you to share in his fellowship by his grace. So I'm going to pray. We're going to give you a moment to reflect and then you're going to be called forward, invited forward. We'll sing if we have the time, celebrate, and we'll be sent out from here as his people. Father, we thank you this morning for a reminder of the expansiveness, the bigness, the totality of your gospel and your grace, not just for our guilt but for our shame. Lord, help us. Lord, by your spirit, do, do this miracle for us. Cultivate here and in our homes a place and a culture where the misplaced shame that so many of us suffer from and feel isn't welcome, where we have brothers and sisters who can show us the same kind of empathy that you have shown us by entering into our mess and our stories and hearing them and identifying them, but speaking your grace to us. We want to be a place where that kind of shame, it doesn't have a place anymore. Lord, we want to see you and we want to know you and we want to enjoy you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do by your spirit in each of our hearts, that you would make that a tangible reality for each of us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.